Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All views of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 10th of March. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Moran. That was a perfect introduction, Giselle. Very good. Yeah, one you, would thought would have thought I've done this before. One would have thought that you actually were concentrating um, oh, and getting ready instead of doing the I, Sudoku. I but am anyway. very good at doing the Sudoku and doing the show, Pierre. That's you right. know that. That's right. But anyway, thanks for any for another very interesting program and uh, all those excerpts from uh, the International Women's Day Rally that we might um, talk here a little bit about as well. But um, that music that you were listening was um, Bikini Kill uh, singing Rebel Girl. Sounded quite a good uh, little song. So um, well done, Annie. Sometimes you get them right. Oh, oh, Annie, normally it's me that does the insults, but I'm glad my tutoring of Pierre has worked out well. Now, um, and who brings you every week the program, apart from us in, in the person, but in the flesh? That's right. The organisation that sits behind us in the flesh is uh, Australia Asia Worker Links. And for those of you who don't know, I don't, we don't often explain who we are, but we build international trade union links between um, workers, unions and organisations in Australia and right across Asia. Um, and we uh, work on international campaigns, industrial campaigns for um Connecting workers struggle and building that international strength. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us or find out more about us, you can find us on the web, all the w's.aawl.org.au. You can email us at aawl at aawl.org.au. And of course, find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter uh, and we do respond to messages there. And um, on today's program, we'll, we'll have the usual Labor Roundup. And uh, in the second half of the program, we'll be talking to Lionel Bopaji, who's a um, long-time uh, Sri Lankan um, Labor activist. Uh, and we've heard him before on the news about the really, really... We we're just commenting out on this, Giselle, on, on the sad... How would you even put it? Well, I mean, for those of you who don't know, a state of emergency was declared in Sri Lanka on the the 4th of March. Um, And uh, the state of emergency was declared in response to Buddhist and Muslim violence. This is how it's being pitched. So communal violence between the two ethnic groups. But, of course, basically what is happening is people under the guise and defence of um, Buddhism are burning and destroying Muslim homes and murdering Muslims on the streets. And despite the state of emergency, that violence hasn't stopped and there is no actual evidence of um, the military forces implementing or um, 
well, implementing the state of emergency. So these uh, Buddhist gangs are continuing to reign terror on the streets of Candy, mostly, um, but uh, across across the island. Yes, I think the the name for these are called are called pogroms. Yeah, but okay. uh, anyway, but yeah, no, very correct there, and we'll be interested to get the latest um, uh, news and analysis from Lionel. But that's in the second half of the program. But we'll go straight to the news items. But before we go to news items, we're just ready to go. Number one, um, Giselle, International Women's Day rally. Just a very quick feedback. Ah, that oh, it's very hard to give very quick feedback on the rally this year. Um, listeners will know that I'm one of the central organisers of International Women's Day and have been for, I don't know, almost, well, actually this year marks my 20th year. I started organising IWD in 1998. You must um, be in nappies. <laughs> yes, I was, <laughs> because I'm only 20 now. Um it, uh, so firstly, um, for the last five years, the collective has had a real commitment of bringing International Women's Day into the labour movement. So um, locating it directly inside Trades Hall and inside Rawfest, and Rawfest is in its third year. Um, so that, that's been successful. It is a labour movement event, which its origins have always been. It is International Working Women's Day. The thing about um, the feminist movement is... You know, part of the backlash against feminism had been its appropriation by the liberals and by right-wing feminists, Um, you know, that glass ceiling, all of that kind of stuff. But it basically means the feminist movement is very wide um, and it's – I mean, there's no way to run a – and this this explains or shows why class politics is so uh, important. There actually aren't a set of demands that women can – organize around because actually women women aren't a class women are a gender they are oppressed at, on the grounds of gender but working class women and ruling class women absolutely have different demands so as IWD grows in Melbourne the feedback we get on social media becomes more and more intense. We're being criticised for everything, for being too close to the unions, for being not close enough to the unions, for not including trans and lesbians enough, for including trans and lesbians too much, for having a pro-sex worker position, for not having a strong enough pro-sex worker position. And it's really interesting to watch these debates unfold. What happened at – so this year, in the past, we've had sex worker speakers on the platform. We've had trans speakers on the platform. This year we didn't. We had other speakers. Um, I, the IWD Collective hasn't debriefed this yet, so I you know, I can't speak oh, out of turn, I, oh, right? Are you, are you going to get yourself into trouble? If well, you like? I mean, I've got a, a personal opinion yeah, yeah. that I'm going to argue in the meeting, but – our comrades from the trans community and from the sex worker community did complain to me personally about harassment that they were experiencing in the rally by other feminists. This is a real thing. The um, anti-trans and anti-sex worker feminists are real and participate in the movement. Once I'd received that complaint, I probably... We probably, the International Women's Day Collective, probably should have provided some space on the platform for our comrades to speak. And that didn't happen because we had a speaking, you know, you, a rally is organised. Um, 
in with, the, with hindsight, it's always yeah, that's uh, right. But our, the the trans comrades intervened in the demonstration um, and took the platform and spoke. And in the end, they were given the space to do that. Um, it was very confusing for a lot of people. It was very confronting for a lot of people. But that's what happened. So it looked very messy at the end. Um, that was International Women's Day 2018. Um, yeah, look, messy, I don't know. Well, maybe for a person like me who's been at way too many demos, um, I've, seen, I've seen lots in life, Giselle, and uh, you sort of go, oh, yes, a group of people slightly unhappy. They've taken the microphone and whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Uh, one question, though. Many years ago, the, one of the big discussion was actually about having men yeah. in, the, in the rally. Yeah, um, that... Those politics have been defeated in the International Women's Day Collective for the moment. They might come back, but at the moment they're defeated. So last year, um, AAWL successfully argued for and won that the International Women's Day Organising Committee and March was open to everybody. The March has been open to everybody for a very long time, um, but... Last year, we succeeded in saying organising around women's struggle is everybody's business um, and everybody is welcome. <laughs> the, overwhelmingly, the organisers are women. In fact, no men-identified men participate have participated in organising, but there have been um, trans-identified people participating or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, so in, in terms of demos, I've had a, a very quick look and hopefully um, the mini news that we put out uh, at the end of the, on Sunday, um, we'll have a bit of a roundup around the world. And I do have to say that I've seen uh, two great videos from two different demonstrations, we'll, I'm sure will be highlighted. One um, from Spain in Bilbao. Uh, it was very um, lots of singing and basically thousands and thousands. And another one from Istanbul. Um, where it's quite clear there's this huge march and they break through the police lines. Well, there were also strikes called across Europe for International Women's Day. So in the railways in Italy, in the railways in Spain and in London, um, cinema workers went on strike for as a, an International Women's Day um, intervention mm. in society. Okie doke. Now, it's uh, just 11 past uh, Oh, we've got to race through these. Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it, Giselle. Okay, it. we're starting in India. A fire that broke out on Friday the 9th of March in a chemical factory in Wasar near Mumbai has killed at least three workers and injured many more. The fire was so fierce that it affected five other nearby chemical factories and the sound of exploding chemicals could be heard up to 12 kilometres away. The cause of the fire is unknown at this stage, but unfortunately deadly workplace accidents or incidents are common in India due to the lax OHS regulations and enforcement. And um, we go to um, Australia. Well, we, we come back to Australia. Um, after an eight-week strike, around 90 workers were able to retain their rostered days off and increase their wages. The workers are employed by Australian Paper in the northern Melbourne suburb of Preston. And um, this uh, company is the country's biggest envelope manufacturing plant. The workers were ably supported by the union, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, throughout the weeks of dispute. While not every detail of the new agreement was settled, the workers um, are confident that outstanding issues are going to be resolved quickly. 
Um, in India again in late February, workers employed at the Tamil Nadu Electricity Board signed a new four-year agreement that gave them a 17% wage increase as well as higher minimum wage set at $276 US a month. This agreement came only after thousands of workers took strike action in mid-February against the Electricity Board, um, which uh, slowed their negotiating tactics. While the agreement contains significant gains, there are many other outstanding issues, including the use of precarious employment contracts and chronic understaffing, which is leading to serious OHS issues for the remaining workers. And uh, some of that precarious, the issue of uh, precarious work is something that um, we seem to talk every week. Um, we now go to Bangladesh, where it's an interesting story to um, keep our eyes um, appealed because it's going to be um, unfolding. Um, in late February, a number of garment unions in Bangladesh formed the Industrial Bangladesh Council, or IBC, to issue a, a series of demands that included a call for the minimum wage to be raised from the current 68 US dollars a month to 192 US dollars a month, so basically a tripling. Now, the garment sector worldwide is renowned for its vicious race to the bottom tactics, and um, Bangladesh workers have not had a wage increase since 2013. And actually, the wages that they've got were uh, one in the years 2009 to 13, so four years, that came only through long, bitter struggles that saw millions of workers take to the streets. Given the history of, of repression, government workers can expect a hard road ahead, and uh, we'll certainly keep a lookout on, on, uh, on this A recently released paper has confirmed that the Australian government will continue to fund and train members of the Myanmar military. While the paper recognises that other countries have different positions, Australia needs to protect its own interests in the region. The Myanmar military has been preparing a campaign of ethnic cleansing against its minority Rohingya population in western Myanmar. The military is also accused of continuing its offensive against other minority groups. Of course, one has to wonder what Australia's interests are in the region and presumably it's uh, to stop refugees coming in. So rather than allowing the Rohingya to flee, let's just kill them. That is actually what that says, that Australia's interest is the ongoing genocide of the Rohingya. Well, there could be a, a possibility. There's probably some good minds in uh, in Myanmar as well. And, of course, coming from that, there are um, huge uh, refugee rallies planned for the last, um, sun- last Saturday or Sunday. I can't quite remember now. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Um, so keep an eye. We'll um, certainly um, publicise these as they come up and closer to the date we certainly have to continue the fight for the rights of asylum seekers and refugees both here in Australia and close our concentration camps overseas in Manus and Nauru but that's all that we've got time for for the news roundup we'll go to um, to a um, community break and uh, we'll be back with the interview with Lionel Bopaji about the, uh, the current pogroms in Sri Lanka. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. It's just on 17 past 9 o'clock. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week by Australia Asia Working on your favourite 3CR, on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio. There you go. I think it's time to hand it over to you, Giselle. Uh, so, as we mentioned at the beginning of the program, a state of emergency uh, was declared in Sri Lanka on the 4th of March, uh, supposedly in response to communal violence between the Buddhist and Muslim ethnic groups or religious groups. Um, of course, there will no doubt be many different ways to interpret what is happening in Sri Lanka. And to to assist us with that analysis is Lionel Bopagi. Lionel is a member of Australia Asia Worker Links. He's on the Committee of Management. He's a long-standing um, activist from Sri Lanka and an organiser in Sri Lanka during um, his youth. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, welcome. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, so we, so the way that this situation is being portrayed, of course, is communal violence, arguably equal forces on both sides engaging in some kind of religious dispute. But we know that's not the case. Can you tell us what's happening in Sri Lanka? Um, actually, the whole thing started, the recent incident started uh, with something that happened in an eatery in uh, Ampara district. Um, and uh, that was used as an excuse to attack Muslims. But then there is an environment uh, which led to this situation because there are seeds of racism, uh, fundamentalist religious currents and so on, uh, which have been generated uh, during the last decade or so. Now, uh, I will first explain the incident. What happened is a Sinhala lorry driver uh, by accident, crashed uh, his vehicle into a three-wheeler. You know, the, the, I think uh, most of the Westerners know by uh, some other name. No, no, <laughs> and, we call uh, them three-wheelers, it's fine. Tick-tick-tick-ticks or something. Mm-hmm. And the three-wheeler owned by a Muslim youth. Now, uh, actually, the driver has compensated uh, for the damage caused, and, uh, you know, so the, uh, everybody thought that it was settled. But then uh, some other drunken uh, Muslim people with the drunken driver uh, has gone and attacked the Sinhala driver. And uh, um, as a result, you know, he uh, he, he, he was dead. And uh, now this incident was used to attack uh, Muslims. And uh, actually, from what I uh, heard, uh, this single guy uh, had more Muslim friends than single friends, and uh, he had been helping Muslims. Uh, so uh, it is very sad, but uh, that is what ultimately led to this whole situation. But it was used as a pretext to create anti 
Muslim right. Uh, now, uh, with regard to Muslims in Sri Lanka, uh, I think I need to explain that uh, Muslims have been a trading community in Sri Lanka. Um, I think in uh, most of the Asian countries, uh, they are uh, from the trading community. Now, um, as we know, some of the attacks on the Tamils uh, in the 1983 Black uh, July riots, um, uh, they were allegedly, uh, allegedly uh, what happened was uh, because Tamils were flourishing in terms of their business operations in Colombo especially and also in major towns, uh, they attacked Tamils to uh, get rid of them and uh, get hold of the business operations for the Sinhala community. Now, uh, Sinhala business interests have encouraged fears among Sinhala Buddhists recently, uh, mainly to weaken their Muslim business competitors. Um, and uh, also there are other perceptions within the Sinhala community that have been generated uh, by uh, the extremist groups. And uh, the perception among the Sinhala population, Buddhist population in the country. Uh, now, uh, we have to understand that the Muslim population has increased from 7% to 10% uh, in Sri Lanka. But this has been interpreted by... Uh, Sinhala extreme groups as an uh, as a as an astronomical growth that would lead to uh, outnumber Sinhalese by 2050, and uh, Muslims would take over Sri Lanka and make it an an Islamic holy land. Now, uh, the prescription of Sinhala Buddhist nationalists for this is absorption and assimilation of all all non-majority communities, not only Muslims, Tamils and whoever, other, other small communities. Um, now, um, this apprehension among the Sinhala Buddhist population is being used to create anti-Muslim incidents. Now, um, the problem was, strangely, the President of Sri Lanka and the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka and almost all chief prelates of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, they remained silent when these incidents were occurring. Actually, during the last couple of days, they have come, they have opened their mouth and they have condemned the violence. But until then, you know, sort of when, when, uh, when uh, riots occurred, they uh, didn't come to the open and uh, ask rioters to be calm or compassionate. And uh, this was a similar situation to uh, the Tamil, anti-Tamil Black July riots in 83, because I was a witness to those riots. And, um, uh, but, uh, I mean, I need to credit some of the Buddhist monks who have come openly and publicly appealed uh, to the people to remain calm and not to be misled. There are some of the Buddhist monks who have come forward to do that. Uh, but in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a wider sense, I think uh, all religions uh, have failed in meeting their religious objectives of peace and compassion in this neoliberal world because of the bourgeois competition. Well, it's interesting that you say that and also your linking of this to, um, well, the mercantile 
community of Muslims or the the small small business owners, basically. Um, and I know that you've related this to the 1983 riots. Yeah. But the rhetoric around this, the um, the silence of the government and the military despite the state of emergency, actually it's more reminiscent of the vilification of the Jewish community in Germany um, in the 30s in the lead-up to the Second World War and, of course, what we all know of the genocide by the Nazis of the Jews. Actually, yeah. the rhetoric sounds like that. Yeah, yeah. I think in uh, all situations where, you know, the ruling elite uh, wanted to divert their attention away from people, they created all these situations. It is not only in Sri Lanka, it is happening in Myanmar, it is happening in Thailand these days. You know, sort of if you look at the Buddhist communities there, uh, the anti-Muslim rhetoric uh, used by uh, the ruling elites in those countries uh, have created uh, enormous damage in terms of uh, lives, property, and so on. But we're not using the language of fascism in relation to what's happening in Sri Lanka. Why is that? Do, do you, would you describe the emerging situation as fascist? Um, well, uh, there is some tendency, because what has happened is uh, the, the, these anti-Muslim um, uh, Incidents came into being as a result of uh, what um, what was seeded, uh, starting from I would say, starting from 2012 uh, under the previous regime. As we all know, the previous regime was um, was an autocratic, and it has fascist tendencies, and uh, they killed journalists who were critical of the government. They uh, got rid of uh, Tamils uh, in hundreds of thousands, and uh, you know, sort of. So, so that regime was um, it, it was autocratic, and uh, it had fascist tendencies. And uh, now, uh, it was under that regime this new wave of anti-Muslim. Uh, Propaganda started uh, because they were looking for a new enemy. You know, they got rid of the Tamil uh, LTT, you know, sort of, uh, which was thought, um, you know, sort of uh, trying to establish a separate state through uh, terror. But you know, sort of, with the with the military defeat of the LTT, uh, the government wanted to remain in power and uh, to come to power in the next elections using an, a, a new enemy, uh, which was to be the Muslim community in Sri Lanka. And uh, now, according to reports, the current uh, incidents against uh, Muslims uh, has a political background. And uh, apparently, uh, there are some sources which say uh, Rajapaksa, uh, family or Rajapaksa, the, 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 the political groups involved with Rajapaksa family are involved in this riot. And uh, actually, uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa went to Kandy, I think, yesterday, and uh, he had a meeting with uh, Muslim, Buddhists, and I think some other religious groups. And the meeting was held in a, a house which was uh, allegedly. 
used to plan uh, attacks against Muslims. So, uh, and then there are allegations against the government as well that, uh, say, uh, president has been using these incidents or at least remained silent during the incident uh, to divert attention away from uh, what is happening in Sri Lanka. And prime minister is also accused of being uh, using the incident by remaining silent uh, to divert away uh, the issues he is facing. And at the moment, I wouldn't say in Sri Lanka there is a fascist tendency. I mean, the government is... Um, um, I am willing to give the credit to the government for maintaining at least uh, some uh, form of uh, democratic appearance, you know, sort of... Uh, but then there are um, still, uh, uh, say, we, we are anxious because the government has declared emergency, whether this emergency will be used uh, to do other things, uh, not only to, uh, to control and curb uh, these uh, anti-Muslim rights, but also whether they would use it to uh, arrest uh, protesters, torture protesters, well, Lionel, of course, time will only tell, but unfortunately we've run out of time. But thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. All right, okay. Thank you. That was Lionel Bopigi. He's one of the Committee of Management of Australia Asia Worker Links and a long-standing activist from Sri Lanka and leader of um, uh, movements in Sri Lanka before his migration. We are absolutely out of time. It's half past nine o'clock. Coming up next is Palestine Remembered. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next Saturday from nine o'clock. More news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow, and have a great weekend. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.